0: This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. Hi, welcome back to Storytelling Animals, a podcast of climate ecology and animal justice where we use books to think about our environmental crisis and what comes next, how to move forward. Today, my guest is Carol Giuliani. She is the author most recently of The Creative Lives of Animals. And that's the book we talk about. It came out in November, 2022. And in that book, she covers a variety of different ways in which animals exercise creativity in their day-to-day lives, from the prairie dogs who uh, can find ways to communicate everything from the speed and species of an approaching predator, to whether a human they saw might have a gun, to even innovating new sounds uh, when confronted with novel stimuli. And that's essentially what creativity is for Giulietti. Uh, We talk about it in the interview, um, but, you know, it's not just capital C creativity of making a painting or a sculpture, um, but engaging in novel behaviors that, you know, a different bird might have sung a slightly different song, and these sort of individual acts of creativity, of responding to their environment, Um, Are ways of animals expressing their individuality in ways that ultimately end up shaping their own lives, that of their ecosystems, that of their species, Um, and in some cases we discuss the path of their species' whole evolution. Um, So this marks episode one of a three or four episode series I'll be doing on the topic of animal agency. Um, I think, you know, the different forms of creativity we talk about, I talk about with Carol, Um, are a good intro to this topic, but more broadly, the reason I want to do a specific series on animal agency um, is because it's something that came up tangentially in a lot of the episodes from season one, Um, but I think we typically only mention it briefly and don't have time to dive into the implications. Um, You know, some on the political left even have used animals perceived lack of agency as an excuse, you know, to, to justify their continued subjugation, the argument is that animals are mere objects of history while humans are the subjects that we take our lives and our worlds into our own hands and create them ourselves and other animals just kind of exist. And first, you know, you know, this were true. I don't know that it would uh, justify oppressing them, eating them, torturing them, putting them in small cages. You know, that's probably cruel no matter what. But I think looking specifically at animal agency, um, is important for at least three reasons. The first of which is that it changes the way we look at other animals. It changes, you know, how we understand them. It makes us, in lots of ways, sympathize, empathize with them more, um, and challenges some of these sort of poorer arguments for subjugating them. Um, secondly, it has very concrete implications on what we should do to give other animals the best possible lives um also in ways that affect our own lives for instance you know with biodiversity we have to understand that uh preserving other species isn't just about you know preserving inert lumps of genetic code but about you know other animals who you know do actions in their ecosystems they build dams they build tools and then their relatives learn how to build those tools and those tools spread throughout their culture. And these acts of creativity are part of how those animals sustain themselves and how those entire ecosystems function. So if we aren't looking at the ways in which animals are agents, we don't understand totally what it is we're trying to conserve and how best to conserve it. Um, This is also relevant in more domestic contexts, right? Like again, if, if we think of our dogs or cats as, as agents, as, as, individuals who act upon the world, uh, maybe we realize that, you know, a dog who sits on a pillow all day eating treats, you know, might have a better life than some dogs, but actually isn't having, you know, that great of a life for a dog because sniffing, playing, you know, digging, stuff like that is, is important to a dog exercising its dogness and and feeling, um, you know, genuinely satisfied in, in his or her life. Um, so yeah, so, so looking at animal agency shapes, I think, um, you know, how we think about how to give animals good lives. Um, and thirdly, the reason to look at other animal agency is that I think it offers different possibilities for, um, the sorts of relationships we can have with them that, you know, animal rights, animal liberation, isn't just necessarily a question of us doing stuff for them or not doing stuff to them. Um, but there may be space to sort of act more collaboratively or at least more responsively to each other um, that it can maybe be a, a collective interspecies project in some way. That last point isn't um, something we're going to talk about so much today, but I have a future episode planned about it. Stay tuned. Um, if you want to discuss these ideas with animal about Animal Agency with me, um, we have two upcoming book clubs where you can do just that. Uh, So May 2nd, that's a Tuesday at 8.30 Eastern, 5.30 Pacific, we will be discussing Wild Souls, Freedom and Flourishing in the Non-Human World uh, by Emma Maris. That's a nonfiction book about the ways in which, um, you know, thinking about animal autonomy and agency uh, in the wild, uh, you know, should and shouldn't reshape how we approach conservation um, and sometimes the conflict between holistic ecological goals and individual animal well-being. Um, it's a really interesting book, a lot to talk about, a lot to think about some possibly controversial arguments, uh, but some worthwhile ones. So I hope some of you will join me there. Um, and these are all zoom book book clubs, by the way, you can also listen to the interview I did with Emma Maris. Um, if you want to join the book club, but don't want to read the whole book, that should give you at least enough to chew on, to take part in the conversation. Um, and then... On June 27th, which is a Tuesday as well, at the same time, um, we'll be discussing Plague Dogs, a novel by Richard Adams from, I believe, the 1970s. Uh, He's the author of Watership Down, which I read and loved as a kid, and I'm sure many of you did. Um, The Plague Dogs is a book he wrote maybe for slightly older audiences um, about uh, dogs who escape from a research lab and so it explores, you know, themes of animal resistance, animal rights, uh, animal research, um, and there is also a, a movie version of this book. Where again, if you don't want to read the whole book, uh, but you want to take part in the discussion, you can watch the movie. Um, so to join those book clubs, you can either sign up for my free weekly newsletter for more uh, more information, and you'll get a, a free trial membership from that, or to join on a more permanent basis. Um, Please support this podcast on Patreon, patreon.com slash storytelling pod um, at the Lorex tier or higher. Um, any tier will get you advanced access to episodes. And um, yeah, some new stuff on Animal Agency coming soon, and some other episodes I'm excited about too. So without further ado, here is Carol Giuliani on The Creative Lives of Animals.
1: I'm here with Carol Gigliotti, the author of The Creative Lives of Animals, um, out this year. Uh, Carol, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Um, Yeah, so, you know, your book is about animals and their creative lives. You're an author, uh, artist, activist. Um, How did you kind of first become interested in writing about, thinking about doing art and activism around non-human animals?
1: Um... Well, doing my own art and activism, I've been doing that um, pretty much uh, since I became a visual artist. I was uh, in theater and have a undergraduate degree in performance, but um, I, I didn't enjoy saying other people's words, which really makes it hard if you're an actor, mm-hmm. so... Um, yeah. I, I began to print, uh, do printmaking and then painting. And, um, and so my, my subject was always, uh, animals and our relationship with them. I had, uh, begun being vegetarian when I was 16. So I was pretty aw you know, starting to be aware at 16 of these issues. And, um, so yeah, that's, that's what I did. Um, and then I, Uh, I did a master's in printmaking, and then I, uh, much later in my, just as I hit 40, I uh, started a doctoral program at the Advanced Computing Center for Art and Design, and I was again working with the same sorts of issues, animal issues, but um, I also had to write a dissertation, and when I uh, started writing my dissertation, I realized I... (laughs) I kind of liked writing. It was in terms of what I was trying to say about animals. It was sometimes easier and had more clarity. So, um, I, I didn't right away get into writing about animals with my dissertation, but I, I wrote about ethics and technology. So then I, I wrote lots about ethics and, uh, technology, mostly about virtual environments. And, um, and I, you know, finished the 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 PhD, um, having done high end animation and written a dissertation. So um I then continued with that. I always had ideas about animals uh in my writing, but I got really involved with critiquing uh biotech okay. um and and bio art and nobody was stupid or brave enough to, um, <laughs> which I, I am both, um, which is difficult sometimes. Um, so I, I, I really started looking at what people were doing with animals and what, and in the larger view, what was being done to animals in biotechnology, uh, what kind of impact it was having on them. So I, I did that, but while I was, I, I, put out an edited book called Leonardo's Choice. And while I was working on that, um, the idea that art, uh, a lot of artists felt that there was no limit to what they could do and that art should never be censored, which, you know, I agree with. It's just that um, I also believe that, you know, causing pain to any being for an art project is not acceptable. And so I, you know, that was one of the ways that I sort of got involved with the idea of what, what are the limits of creativity. And from that, I became interested in really what creativity was and, and sort of coming to the idea that, well, if animals, I mean, if people, you know, humans, beings are creative, well, certainly animals must be also. And Um, And then I started to really look at the idea that animals might be creative too. And with early, you know, early on, but it wasn't until um, probably 2012 that I started really researching uh, the topic and found, yeah, you know, I was on the right track.
0: (laughs) Um, Great. And so that's a a nice segue into my next question, which is going to (laughs) be, What do we mean by creativity?
1: Um well defining creativity itself um is always a fraught process. Um many people have have tried to define it, and of course when they do, they usually come from their own field of study, whether that's biology or, or psychology, um uh History, for instance, cultural studies, um, and art historical studies. So you get all these different kinds of of uh, definitions of creativity. But I wanted to broaden, as a number of uh, early biologists were doing. Uh, not that many at the time, but there w- there were there were biologists and psychologists who were thinking about. Broadening creativity uh, to include animals, but I wanted to define it um, in the in a way that I thought would be meaningful in a very broad sense, and I also wanted to bring to it my experience because i 'm not a biologist or a psychologist or a sociologist i 'm an artist, I have a background in the arts and and I guess philosophy too, because i i you know I have a lot of Uh, background in looking at things in philosophical ways, Um, uh, but I didn't want to come to it from really anything but being creative. What is it to be creative? Um, So I define creativity um, as a dynamic process in which novel and meaningful behaviors are generated by, and here is a sticking point, but it shouldn't be, by individuals with the possibility of affecting others at cultural species and evolutionary levels. Um, The first part novel and meaningful, the word meaningful sometimes gives people pause. When I wrote, I was asked to write um, an essay for the opinion essay for the scientist, um, which (laughs) was a shock to me. Really? (laughs) Um, And, And the editor, uh, who was terrific, by the way, uh, said wanted to change the word meaningful. And I I said, you know, I I think I don't want to do that because, (laughs) number one, it's in the book. But number two, meaningful has really been supported by a number of different biologists and psychologists. In other words, it's meaningful, but it doesn't have to be meaningful to what's Called large C or big C, you know, the gigantic creativity that informs everything, uh, you know, and makes a real dent in whatever field you're in. But it could be just meaningful to the individual who is creative. So I wanted to keep mm-hmm. that, and he was very generous and and quite um, uh, quite like I said, really wonderful to work with. And and he said, okay. <laughs> um and then the word individuals and when i say individuals there's lots of uh examples in the book that are about animals um that and i include you know the whole kingdom of animalia um including insects um to really look at individuals who are often seen as having a hive mind or uh you know only Only having intelligence when they all work together. Well, actually, if you look at specific instances like bees, they actually work in some instances in what they do very much as individuals, and their individual creativity is really important. And we might talk about that later. But I think the important part of this, one of the really the last part of it, is the possibility of affecting others at cultural species. And evolutionary levels and those three things I think are are really broaden uh, what creativity can be it's not a question of only including humans it you have to include species all the different species in the world and what that does to uh, to contribute to biodiversity
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up insects because, you know, I think, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about the usual suspects like chimpanzees or whales or elephants, um, (laughs) and, you know, those are fascinating and important species to study, but something that I appreciate in your book is that it goes well beyond this to birds, reptiles, fish, and even, as you mentioned, insects. Um, Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, you know, you cover ant intelligence, bee democracy, wasp play, fly architecture. You know what? Uh, maybe bees you mentioned, but you can pick any one of those. But what surprised you, or just tell us about their creativity?
1: Um, I, <laughs> I really, for me, the most interesting and actually the most documented um, in a lot of ways because of Thomas Seely the bee. Uh, expert and biologist um, was were, we're bees um, because when we think of bees, we we immediately, especially if you're in, for instance, technology, you know, the hive mind and the idea that there is there is this group uh, way to think that can be very productive, um, but the idea that Seely documented. Um, was that individuals um, really contributed as individuals to finding a nest for a new queen bee. Uh, That particular example, I think, is one that people can understand in a way. Um, (laughs) And I say this in the book, if you've ever, you know, sat on a committee and you're trying to come up with creative ideas, you know, sometimes it's, Brilliant, and most of the time, if you're sitting on a committee and you're trying to make a decision, you know it's like, oh, gee, I wish I was at the beach, you know, anywhere, Uh. (laughs) anywhere, but here. But with with bees, um, the the scout bees actually work as individuals in finding um, examples or particular. Uh, places where the the nest they think the nest uh, would be perfect and and those places they they bring back to um, the group and discuss them really with their dances and and then the other bees the other scouts will go and see that nest before they make their decision. So you mm-hmm. get this incredibly open source kind of uh, decision-making where there's no one person making the decisions, but what Sealy says is uh, when they come to a quorum, uh, so it's not really a consensus, it's not really a compromise, it's that most of the bees decide that, um, yes, this is a good place, but... The creativity of each of those bees it has made a contribution to that, and I, I I just think that's that's like the most wonderful example um, of of insects being creative. It's so uh, again, it's very well documented. So you know, you you can really get in there and just I don't know about you, but I just imagine the bees, you know, talking to each other and running around and finding places, and they have to find again, you know, something that I did not know, a very specific nest place that, you know, is, uh, and ants do this too, you know, they have particular uh, requirements that they have Mm -hmm. to meet that will make the best place, and ants do that as well, and I think I say in the book, you know, it's uh, the thing about ants is that they do this, and uh, as one of the researchers uh, says, you know, and they do this all while being a little speck. <laughs> you think of that. I mean, ants are often, especially if you can't see very well like me, you know, they are a speck. And they're doing this these incredibly complex things that we just have never uh, really noticed. And now, of course, uh, so many uh, biologists, um, ethologists, are really making inroads into understanding things about about bees um i'm sorry about insects in general um not just bees but ants and other insects as well
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i you know i think it's important to to draw out because it's something that that shapes a lot of your book that you know if the maybe the conventional cultural thought about what is creativity is like you know making a painting or a sculpture um but yeah these these bees these ants are they're individual behaviors and choices are shaping the lives of their communities. And it's, it's hard to define creativity in a way that excludes that sort of thing. Cause that's ultimately what they're doing.
1: Exactly. I mean, I think the point about it being creative is that, um, uh, you know, if you want to put it in human terms, they're really are planning a uh, product of architecture and mm-hmm. they're looking for a place. And that is a very, you know, that's always kind of a problem with architecture. You know, usually there's a particular place in human architecture and then the building fits in to the, to the land or to the place, hopefully, in a good way. But, you know, this is sort of going the other way, but it's still very much the same process. So, yeah, i I think it has all the qualities of a creative process. And one of the things that... I'll just mention is that I tried to uh, emphasize the fact that to understand creativity there, there, you know, there is a creative process, at least for humans. Now it might be very different with animals of all kinds in, in species specific ways, but the qualities of that process are, are really similar. And so I, I came up with, well, you know, words that I didn't come up with them, but I, I drew together a number of words that were always used, um, in, in talking about creativity in any of the, uh, you know, our human disciplines, but just in general. And I taught creative, uh, the creative arts, um, and not just, you know, the more traditional arts, but. Animation and interactive design, and um, uh, you know, uh, graphic novels. Uh, you know, the mm-hmm. the the creative process includes things like flexibility, intelligence, mm-hmm. curiosity, inventiveness, uh, persistence, and and the last one I think is so important to, to both for being creative as an animal and for being creative as a person and also just being creative in life to be, especially, you know, now, of course it's always been like this, I'm sure, but, um, to be comfortable with with complexity. Mm -hmm. And that's something that a lot of people, um, are not, not because they don't have that quality to begin with, but because it's, at least in Western culture, it's really drummed out of it. Um, uh, of us. And so it's, it's kind of frustrating. Um, and that's, I think, leads to why we have a, a lot of people would have a hard time thinking about animals as creative, um, which is one of the reasons I wrote the book.
0: <laughs> so you, you speak to a number of scientists uh, throughout the book who study different aspects of, animal behavior, ecology, cognition. Um, you asked some questions about, you know, whether they would consider birdsong to be creative or or music. Um, was there anything that stood out to you or surprised you or any themes that came up as you talked with scientists about how they look at animal creativity and how that impacts their work?
1: Yeah, um, it was interesting to talk to uh, uh, the wonderful Kon Slabachikov, who wrote um, Chasing Dr. Doolittle and his mm-hmm. researches about um, uh, prairie dogs and the language of prairie dogs. Um, and he was, you know, he's somebody that is just so comfortable with complexity. Um, and I, I, he's a wonderful man. He was so generous with his time and he was all for Yes, of course animals are creative. And it was interesting because one of the big hurdles that has always been uh used as a wall between us and other animals is language. And here he is talking about, you know, the language of prairie dogs. And what's interesting is that of course he he received a great deal of static um and and refusal but on the other hand, when people talk about his work, I, I've read this in different articles where, you know, somebody somebody will be asked, another scientist, another biologist will be asked, you know, well, is is the research possible? I mean, is this something that you would would say was good research? And they're like, absolutely, there is nothing I can find that's wrong about it, and it it mm-hmm. sounds like they really tried, but they. <laughs> They couldn't. Um, so, yeah. Um, uh, the, and then to talk to somebody like Don Kruzma, who, you know, obviously I read the books of a number of people I talked to. I read a lot before I interviewed, just like you do. And um, and when I talked to Don Kruzma, you know, I, I have a number of his books and he uses the word creativity uh, throughout a number of his books. Uh, he's an ornithologist. He's won many awards. He's spent his life in the field, just like Kon with prairie dogs. He's spent his life in the field with, with birds and um, recording bird song. And, but when it, when I was interviewing him, he really had trouble with my use of the word creativity. And I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> how come you can use it? But I can't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so Of course, I didn't say that to him, but I, I, you know, for him it was a lot of things. I think, and I, I, in the end, felt that he was doing what he felt was best. Um, He didn't want to compare birdsong to human music because he really respects and is totally committed to what birds are saying, what they. Mm are making and not to take the baggage as he called it of music that were you know creative of that 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 baggage that human baggage into understanding what birds are doing and you know I even though he you know he refused to to really give me that word um, <laughs> I agreed with him I I think it's very very important to you know, not just say, "Oh, here's creativity," and animals can do this, so they must be in creative. They do things that we cannot do, mm-hmm. and they have, um, you know, senses and qualities and behaviors that we do not have. And so, of course, their uh, creative their creativity is probably very different in many many ways. I mean, I, I can point to those you know qualities that I just talked about, but again those are <laughs> those are very abstract in many ways um and so they i think they cover a lot of ground of you know like mm-hmm. flexibility you you know it's a very it's a very broad broad term but i I did really end up respecting his um uh refusal to let <laughs> Uh, to let me use the word just in case I was going to use it <laughs> with the way he didn't like it, and and of course um, uh, Richard Prum, you know, who is is mm-hmm. a wonderful uh, ornithologist and and evolutionary biologist, and is just really fun to talk to, and and I, I you know he's absolutely comfortable with complexity. I mean, the guy just you just could sit back and listen to him all day. Um, He's really quite, how can I say this? Even, even his, you know, he was sort of creating as we were talking in a way, Mm -hmm. you know, um, about, about things that he was looking at. Um, So in some ways, those, those three people, um, you know, I had the longest interviews with, but there were many other uh, biologists uh, like the Holocamp, team that were studying, uh, creativity in hyenas. Um, and that I thought was really incredible. And I, I, I was kind of in a rush when I got to that. And I, you know, I was sort of like, I didn't think I had the time to interview. Now, of course I'd like to go back and, and interview them. Um, uh, and that was that just for the audience, um, that what they did was they, you know we're in the field uh in Masamara uh with a particular group of um of hyenas and uh you know hyenas are are one of those animals that people seem to despise and i mean actually i i think they're quite beautiful and 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 i think people that work with them and people in africa who actually have them as I don't know if you'd call it a pet and I'm not so sure it's, you know, it's, there's an ethical issue about it, but, you know, I think people that know them are, find them to be really, really quite interesting. And, 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 and so it's really interest, not just interesting, but kind of fabulous that, that these women decided to do this. But what they did was they offered the, the um, hyenas a box that, it, they had to get open, and there was meat in the box, so they had to figure out how to get the latch open and to op and to get into the box and they studied uh you know they took millions of miles of videotape documenting this, and what they found was it wasn't just persistence that really helped the cre- you know that the create the most creative hyenas um at least in this instance, used, but it was also the ability to just look at it in different ways, mm-hmm. um, not just con- continuing to use the same, you know, pulling open the latch in a, the way that never worked. You know, it was turning the box around and and really playing with it in a way, which sort of goes back to the the idea in the book that play is absolutely necessary for for creativity
0: yeah i there's a few different points you made there that i I want to follow up on, but maybe let's start with play um
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know i I think it's maybe an accessible way for people to think about non human creativity if you know if you've played tug of war with your dog or whatever mm-hmm. that you, you know you know that they can pretend and they can switch up their tactics uh and act in you know new ways um but one of the maybe more surprising uh places that you look to play uh is in reptiles um in turtles mm. alligators crocodiles mm. <laughs> uh and honestly throughout the book there are a few different alligator crocodile examples that um were some of the most surprising sections to me um and and yeah really interesting um and you know you have this this fascinating anecdote of an alligator in an otter plane yeah um so maybe. If you could start with with sharing that, but then you know more generally, uh, talk about alligators. <laughs>
1: um, yeah the 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 wonderful story is about um and this is from uh a biologist uh, Vladimir Dimitz, who's done a lot of uh, research on alligators and crocodiles, but this is alligators, um and and um otters that were in uh a particular pond and the, the there were a number of alligators and they were sort of camped there and the otters would tease the alligators splashing them and stuff. And not, you know, most of the alligators just ignored them, but um, one of the alligators would, you know, spray them with water back and uh, he, you know, he was obviously playing with them. And then at one point one of the otters slipped and fell into the water. And, you know, you're like, uh and and disappeared, and then the alligator brought him back up and set him on the, the ground. <laughs> what? Uh-huh. I mean, they don't do that to people. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they just kill a person. But, you know, they were playing, and the alligator knew they were playing the otter, at that point, probably was hoping that the alligator would remember, but then they continued to play um but you know no more drowning um or almost drowning and And I just found that to be I laughed out loud when I read that, and i I just went around for like the day just so happy about <laughs> um so yeah, this idea that play has different rules, um, in many ways that the idea that if, and we, we have, you know, this kind of example in sometimes you hear war stories where, you know, two sides come together and they agree that they're not going to shoot each other for a holiday or something Mm -hmm. and they play cards or something. And the rules are very different Then they go back and, you know, they could kill each other the next day. It's very strange. To me, but um, for play and and Mark Bechov actually does talk about this. His uh, book, um, Wild Justice, I think is one that everyone should read. Um, uh, it really is a, is a, a fascinating and and also Jessica Pierce is the other author, and and you know they talk about the rules in play, where you have to learn trust, you have to uh learn that, you know, if you bite too hard, if you happen to be a a dog or a wolf, um, you know, that maybe no one will play with you if you can't keep your teeth in your mouth. Um and so this idea of of learning uh through play is one that has always been around, but it's not been looked at in this the the quite the way that Mark and Jessica looked at it in terms of being uh, you know, really learning uh, mor- morality in a way, Use, learning the mores of a particular species behavior if you're a young wolf or a young dog. or And, you know, we know that with our dogs, too, I I would think. Um, you know, there's all kinds of rules that go on, on in the dog park. Mm-hmm. And if you watch, you will see them. And they're very specific and if someone breaks it, it's pretty obvious. If someone goes against one of those and bites too hard, for instance, you know, things change. Um, But you asked me to talk a little bit about alligators. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, again, here's an animal uh, that we, you know, we kind of are afraid of, we see as, as uh, you know, just an eating machine, uh, you know, somebody, you know, an alligator, alligators in Florida do kill dogs and once in a while people. Um, and yet they have this other side or rather they have a side just like most, most humans, you know, they can be really nice or really mean. Um, and they, uh, you know, court uh, there, there was an, example about the one, actually, this was a crocodile uh, couple, and he would take the female, the the male alligator would take the female alligator, I'm sorry, crocodile would take the female crocodile around uh, the pool on his back. And, you know, just give her little rides. (laughs) Um, And also this playing with um, a particular kind of flower, bougainvillea, bougainvillea, I hope I'm saying that right, um, I thought was really interesting that they, that, at, you know, that some alligators would have this really fast, really real fascination with bougainvilleas and they would just play with them for a long time. You know, those, those kinds of things. And of course I, I imagine you're, you remember the uh, dancing water of the alligator, alligator um, sexual courtship where the male alligator does this incredible dance and, you know, arches his back in sort of a sin curve and then goes beneath the water and makes the water dance. Mm -hmm. And that is courtship display for for the female. Mm -hmm.
0: Um,
1: And that I found really quite beautiful and fascinating. So, you know, I... I I think that those things were were just in and of themselves. I think they were they would be something that might change people's mind as to you know all the different aspects of life for animals, and you know that they are not just a predator or just prey.
0: Yeah, I the courtship examples, um, I think can maybe show one of the things you bring up, um, which is that, you know, the concept of creativity, it's individual creativity, but it, it has repercussions on, you know, cultural species and ecosystem levels. Um, you mentioned Richard Prum earlier, uh, mm-hmm. Talk about his ideas on the evolution of beauty, when right. the agency of the females, choo- you know, they're choosing, you know, they like this particular right. alligators dance, or this bird song, or, you know, right. and so, Yeah, can you maybe expand on on his idea for those who haven't encountered that before?
1: Yeah, um, he talks about this in The Evolution of Beauty. I'm pretty sure that's the name. Um, But he talks about um, a number of species that, uh, and he's an ornithologist, so most of it was bird-related, but um, where they, like bowerbirds, make these beautiful bowers for Mm -hmm for uh, females Um, and they they make them in in shapes that are very elegant and they do things like using false perspective where they'll gather all these blue items you know shiny glass and eyeball (laughs) eyeballs that was that was really one thing an eyeball I don't know where they got that and any kind of blue leaves and all kind you know so that would make the entrance really engaging, so that if the female was would come into the the bower, that she might want to shag. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like this is this is okay. But what's important, I think that he, the important point that he makes in the book, I think, and other other biologists are really looking into this. In in, for instance, birds of paradise, is that um, the females. <laughs> are making the creative decisions and the Mm -hmm. males are kind of, you know, producing, uh, mating behaviors, songs, even the use of their feathers in a way that they know the females will like so that the females really are the ones that are driving in a way that those evolutionary, um, uh, and and by, you know, biodiversity—the biodiverse uh, ways in which these birds, like the bower birds and the the um, uh, birds of paradise—exist uh, and continue to evolve. And I, you know, he actually makes the point in the book that you know this that this is not just. Um, some sort of human cultural thing, but it is uh, the way evolution works. Hmm. And I, and, you know, I I do think that's really, really interesting that it is, uh, (laughs) it is the females that really drive uh, that. You know, who, who they uh, mate with has to come up to their standards of what they think is beautiful. And that doesn't happen, you know, in all species. It may be different from species to species. But um, in those two bird species, I, you know, it's pretty obvious that that's, that's what's driving because both of them have been documented quite a bit. Um, you know, there's tons of videos. And I, I think I say in the book, and it's very true, if you go to the Cornell um, Ornithology Lab and look at, for instance, the bird of, of paradise uh, and cr- videos and and all all the information that is there, you will become addicted, <laughs> and you might as well just like go on vacation for a while so that you can actually just enjoy it. Um, it it just I still do it once in a while just to up my day, um, you know, cheer myself up because mm-hmm. uh, it's so fascinating and so beautiful. Yeah. Um, even to us. Um, and it's interesting to me that in the case of the, well, both the bowerbirds birds and the um, the birds of paradise, uh, you know, that these, these things that animals create are beautiful to us. And I do make the point though, in the book that aesthetics in human terms has changed quite a bit. And beauty is not the only thing. Uh, uh, idea that shapes aesthetics in humans. And, you know, it's funny because I, if you're in the arts, you take that for granted, but if you're not, um, you know, sometimes people think, oh, well, beauty is, is how all all art is made, which is why a lot of people who don't speak art, speak art language or aren't familiar with art and its changes, um, you know, don't always understand that something that looks absolutely ugly to them is why is that art? Um, mm-hmm. And that that's an interesting thing, too, because we're kind of doing the same with what animals do. So a lot of creativity in animals, it may not look beautiful to us or it may not look anything to us. Let's put it that way. But it may be very creative. Um and we just haven't figured that out yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the.
0: I mean, if if any of you have not seen uh, documentary footage on powerbirds, I, I recommend looking that up after you're done listening to this podcast. Making their little little huts or bowers or whatever they are, but um, anyway, <laughs> you know, in reading about that chapter in animal architecture, I was reminded of. Um, the puffer fish, which makes basically like little sand sculptures on the ocean floor to impress potential mates. Yes. And yes. why? Why I was thinking about this is a couple months back, I, I had an interview uh, with Martha Nussbaum about her book Justice for Animals. Uh huh. And overall, like it's a fantastic book, and I really enjoyed the interview. Um, but she she talks about fish, and she thinks it's wrong to to harm fish, um, but she doesn't necessarily think it's wrong to kill fish uh, because she thinks that they seem to live in the moment. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, one, even if this were true, I'm not sure it follows that we should kill them, but, but two, it, it's, you know, looking at some examples of fish life, it's hard to imagine that they're living fully in the moment, that they don't have some sense of their past and future. Um, right. and, right. Right. you know, the, the puffer fish was one example of that, but you talk about another in your book, which is the cleaner wrasse. Right. <laughs> uh, do you, do you, can you tell us about these little fish that yeah. clean other fish?
1: Yeah, the, the, the cleaner fish, um, are, do what the name says. They ex, have a place where other fish can come and get all the little things that are on them cleaned off. And the cleaner fish enjoy this, um, in some ways because, of course, um, they get to eat some of it. Um, but they also, if they bite into the fish too hard, because they, it, you know, the place that they're cleaning, there's mucus that tastes really good, then, you know, the, the fish that's being cleaned can get very angry and, and not come back. Um, the person who studies this, um, it, it's just, you know, kind of looked at, at this as a business and sort of in, in um, you know, an, an econ- looked at it as an economy. It's like a fish economy you know and it very definitely has um examples of fish being or fishes and in this case particular fish individual fish being uh you know doing their job differently and which ones might you know be more popular um and which ones people wouldn't want to come back to because they they, uh you know, would sort of go against what they were supposed to be doing and bite them. But also, the the cleaner fish would not always treat the local fish as well as the passing-by fish um or fishes. And I keep mixing that up because the idea that fish, using the word fish, is sort of saying that all the fish in the sea, which... I think I have a number in the book at the time when I um, it's from the fish database um, are the same, you know, they're just one group and they just sort of float from place to place, but they are individual fish (laughs) is, and that's Jonathan Balcombe makes that point in his book. um, What a fish knows. And so I make a point about using the word fishes. I definitely disagree with with Nussbaum, Martha Nussbaum. And I, I, you know, respect her, but I don't agree at all with, um, for many reasons. Um, And one of the things that I meant to say when we were talking about Prum was that one of the questions I asked him was, if you're doing all this research on individual fish, or I'm sorry, individual birds and what they can do, um, you know, how do you feel about killing birds? You know, has that changed? Mm -hmm. Um, and he said, you know, I can't tell you that I've thought that completely through. Mm -hmm. I was, the thing I like about Richard Brum is that he's just so honest, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I, I don't think that if you are writing about animals in general that you pick a, you know, you can pick a particular species, uh, especially all the fish. I mean, there are so many fish. (laughs) There are more fish Uh than land animals um, and Mm -hmm. can say, but it's okay to to kill those. Um, I do think that we we make these decisions not based on any kind of scientific fact, any kind of reality, any kind of uh, experience, but we, we base killing other animals on mostly our own uh, needs, and mm-hmm. that things that we just don 't want to give up and I say we, but i don 't do that, but you know a lot of people do um, so I think that point about individual animals uh, both for fish and for um, the bur- you know the birds that Prem is talking about or or insects, the idea of the individual is, I think, one of the most important points in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the, the thing that I wanted to do with the book was to take animals out of this victim status. Now, I wrote a lot about animals as victims, and yes, they are in many ways because we treat them as such. But I wanted to put them into a human category that often is seen as very respected and also uh, very um, unusual. And a lot of people say, oh, I wish I was creative. I think everybody's creative. I've taught many, many people, and I find every single person I've ever taught has been creative, whether they wanted to use it, whether they had obstacles to that is another thing. But, the main idea of the book um, was that the creati- creativity of animals exists on the individual group, species, and ecosystem level. And so the loss of an individual animal is the loss of that individual's unique contribution to those interacting levels. And, you know, if we're wondering why we're losing biodiversity, well, that is definitely One of the biggest reasons. There's many things that we do to animals that curtails their contribution to to biodiversity, and and I'm not saying that that's only important for us, but it's important for them.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I'm glad you touched on that because I, you know, I think one of the things that, on the one hand, the book is interesting just as a you know a catalog of of interesting facts about animals right um and interesting is underselling it you know they're surprising fascinating etc but the you know you're making a moral philosophical point as well
1: right right um,
0: that you know that this should change how we consider other animals and then also a practical one of if other animals are creatively shaping their own lives, the lives of their communities, the lives of entire ecosystems, then that absolutely impacts what, what is the good life for an animal? What conservation looks like? How to conserve biodiversity. If we aren't considering that individual animal's perspective, then we're sort of missing how best to take care of the whole as well. Yes. So, so yeah, maybe just as a, a last question, Um, were there any, uh, have there been any particularly memorable or formative, um, experiences you've had with other animals in person that have, have shaped your own views?
1: Um, yeah, I've had quite a few. I, I've been, you know, I've always seemed to be around animals or have animals live with me. And, you know, in terms of you know, more domestic pets like cats or dogs. I just wait. They come to me. <laughs> I don't really have to do anything. Um, and I, I accept that. I find that to be really helpful because, you know, if I feel like I mean, my, my great Pyrenees people kind of laugh at this. Um, she, she had her tail cut off in Texas and she was in a high kill shelter. Jeez. Um, and I, I saw her in a video, and I just – I really – as I'm kind of older now, and I was going to get an older small dog, which I've never had a small dog before, and I I saw her, and I was like, oh, she's really nervous. I could just see her anxiety on the video. So I decided I would adopt her, and it took about eight – she had such terrible separation anxiety. Um, The second night I had her, she – she uh ripped, I had a window open on the second floor. She went up there and she, she ripped open the, pushed the window up with her nose, ripped the screen and dived out. And luckily that slid down the pergola into the neighbor's fenced yard. So thank goodness she did that. And I left her, I was gone for about an hour. And then I realized, oh my God, this, this is serious separation anxiety. So I worked for quite a long time with her, but um, she kind of decided at some point that she was going to solve the problem. Hmm. And she did. She decided that if she sat on the dining room table, she's a big dog. She sat on the dining room table and she could see out the window where my car was parked. And she knew if I drove away with the car, then I was going to come back and park right there. And you know, that did it. I mean, she was, I didn't say go sit on the, di- obviously go sit on the dining room table. Uh-huh. But I also thought to myself, yeah, I'm the right person because not a lot of people would let their dogs sit on the dining room table. But I was like, you know, if it makes her happy, great. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't do that any longer, but she did it for, oh, I don't know, about s- six months or so. So, um, and now she's willing to, you know, she. She's okay with the couch. She has taken over the couch completely, and I really can't sit there. But, you know, I'm yeah. allowed to eat now. On the <laughs> yeah, uh,
0: well, thank you for sharing that. And is there anything else you want to add on your book or anything
1: else? Um, I would just like to add to tell people just uh, you know I know a lot of people who listen to this are animal people and probably already vegan and animal rights people but you know if you're just hearing this just be open that's all creativity is about really just and and to understand other animals just be open be open to things um, there's so much incredible life going on all around us all the time and if you're open to that I think you know it it really would help you as a person as a human being and it would help the animals, too.
0: Um, well, thank you so much, Carol Giuliani. The book is The Creative Lives of Animals. Thanks for coming on the
1: show. Oh, I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. It was a lovely interview.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Again, this is the first in what is planned to be a four episode series on the theme of animal agency and how that could transform our relationship with other animals, our politics, um, and also just how it's often very cool. Um, If you want uh, early access to some of the future episodes in the series, um, the way to get that is to support this podcast on Patreon. Uh, I couldn't thank you enough if you go to patreon.com slash storytellingpod, pick a level, uh, and make just a small monthly um, payment to keep this podcast going, keep this podcast thriving. All right, that's all for now, and uh, see us hopefully in a couple weeks with a new episode. For more great iRoar podcasts, visit iRoarPod. That's i r o a r p o d. dot com.